Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all on this uh, beautiful November day, and uh, we're excited because we're nearing the end of our study of the Gospel of John. In fact, next week we'll be concluding uh, the study by looking at the last half of chapter 21. Uh, And by the way, for those of you that may be visiting with us or watching online, my name is Paul. I'm the teaching pastor here at New Life. Um, But this morning, we have the privilege uh, of hearing from Trevor Butch, our worship director. Uh, What a blessing thing it is to have a worship director that can come and bring the word. And uh, so he's going to be doing that. And he's going to be covering the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 21 that will uh, set the stage for our conclusion next week. But as he comes, let me uh, pray for our time together. Father, I thank you for this morning, for the opportunity that we have to worship you, to give you the thanks and the praise that you deserve for who you are and what you have done for us. And Lord, as we've been tracking along um, with your servant, John, as he has recorded the events of your ministry, um, of your death and your resurrection, uh, Lord, I pray that even this morning that you would prepare our hearts to see, to hear, to understand the things that your first disciples understood on this very day um, that we'll be looking at. And so, Lord, um, I ask that you would just uh, comfort us where we need to be comforted, convict us where we need to be convicted, and most importantly, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, it's so good to be here this morning, uh, just to be able to have the privilege to open up God's Word and dig in uh, to John chapter 1 with you guys today. Um, Just before we begin, I have a quick question for everybody. Who here... When you go to the movies, the movie is over, you stay all the way to the end just to make sure you don't miss anything, right? Anybody else? Not just me? Just a couple people. Okay. Um, it's like, like in Ferris Bueller's Day Off where he comes out and he says, you're still here? The movie's over. Go home. Go. So thanks now to Marvel movies that have come, you know, during my time as an adult, um, I, I have to stick around all the way to the end just to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, sometimes it's ridiculous, sometimes it's something very silly, um, but oftentimes it teases something that's upcoming or um, it wraps up some loose ends uh, from the movie that we see. Um, So last week we finished reading from John chapter 20. It's the high point of John's gospel. Jesus has been resurrected. He's gone to his disciples, he's appeared to them, and he's given them this mission that they need to go and follow. And John concludes chapter 20 with the purpose of the book that he's written by the Spirit's power that we may see these miracles and these signs, may we read about them, and that by reading and seeing those things, we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and we would have life everlasting. So after this powerful thesis statement from John, it just seems like the credits should start rolling. It goes to black, you start to see, it says the end at the end, or sincerely John, but then there's chapter 21. It almost seems like it comes out of nowhere. Um, the most obvious answer that it's there, though, is the fact that the Holy Spirit clearly had something else for us to read. Um, And it serves as an epilogue as it ties up a few loose ends and it looks to the future. So here in verses 1 through 14, Jesus, he has a few reminders for his disciples. um, that He's already taught them these things, but they need to hear it one more time. And they're very powerful reminders for us as well. First, Jesus reminds his disciples that they are utterly powerless on their own. Second, Jesus reminds his disciples that he alone is their strength and provider. And finally, Jesus once again reminds his disciples that he has indeed physically resurrected from the dead. 
He didn't come back as a phantom or a ghost or anything like that. He was completely in human form, resurrected with a body, with a physical and tangible body. We have to be 100% convinced of this. So today, let's begin uh, just by opening up our Bibles to John chapter 21 and read the whole text. Um, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. So verse 1 starts by saying, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to them, to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this is the word of God for us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, these powerful reminders for us, Lord. God, that we would see these, that we would hear them, that we would apply them to our lives, Lord. Give us hearts today that are receptive to your word. Humble us where we need to be humble. Convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord, today. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we get into some of these reminders, uh, we have to first look at the setting for everything that's going on. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. So, the ES, so first of all, the Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. Um, and, the, and the ESV here says that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples the New American Standard Version actually renders this word as manifested. Um, in verse 14, it also says this was the third time that Jesus was revealed or manifested uh, to the disciples. The word in Greek means to reveal or to make clear. It's not just this, um, you know, this time of, oh, we saw him that time. It, there was a revelation that's occurring here. So Jesus is making it clear to them that he has indeed risen from the dead and the resurrection was real. As Paul taught a couple weeks ago, the resurrection proves the empty tomb. To prepare his disciples for their mission, it needed to be made clear to them that he had been resurrected and therefore he had defeated death. So it says, after the events in chapter 20, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two other disciples of his were together. So you've got Peter, you've got Thomas, doubting Thomas, you've got Nathaniel, and you've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Based on the locale that's going on and with what they're doing, a lot of people believe that it was Philip and Andrew were the other two disciples that were there. Um, so based on the locale, it seems that 
it makes sense that Peter and Nathaniel, James and John, and these two disciples, Andrew and Philip possibly, um, were there. Thomas was also there with them. I think probably because after he missed out on seeing Jesus the one time, he said, nope, I am never, ever going to miss that again. Peter, where you're going, I'm just going to go with you. Man, I really hope that my doubt doesn't become a nickname for me. (laughs) Oh, boy. So why are we here? Why are they here specifically? So a couple passages from the other Gospels, they give us this answer. So back in Mark 16, it says, um, after an angel appeared to the women at the tomb, he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And back in Matthew 28, the angel appeared to the women and said, um, after the angel appeared, Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So the disciples here, they're being obedient to the Lord. They said, we're going to go to Galilee. We're going to go where we used to live and hang out there. Wait for the Lord to come and meet with us. So in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said, we will go with you. So despite his previous failure, you see Peter's leadership is still here. Um, He goes fishing. He says, I'm going to go. They all say, we're going to go with you. This is what they did for a living after, you know, before Jesus called them. So there's been all these different, you know, explanations or sermons preached on why they went fishing. I think it's often taught that it's an indication that maybe they were going back to their old lives. They were giving up on Jesus's mission, so they went fishing. It also could be that they were bored that they needed to pass the time waiting for him. You know, I don't know if Eric would go fishing for an entire night just to pass the time, but maybe he would. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe they also wanted to be productive with their time. Maybe they ran out of money, so being fishermen, they said, we'll go out and make some money, get some food going fishing. If you don't work, you don't eat. Now, we could so easily speculate on why they went fishing, um, But that could cause us to miss what the text actually says because it doesn't give us the reason that they went fishing. Um, We have to be careful not to read something into Scripture that isn't isn't explicitly stated there. So they were going fishing. (laughs) Simon Peter said to them, we're going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So think about this. They were professional fishermen. They did this for a living. If, this, if they had been this bad at fishing before, they probably should have found a new profession, um, which Jesus called them out of that anyway. So they had all the technical expertise. They knew this lake. They knew the area they were fishing, yet they didn't catch anything. Now, they weren't out there with a fishing pole and some worms and some lures. They had these large, huge nets that they would use. The fish would swim into them. They'd haul it on, onto their boats. It was probably one of the only times in their entire fishing careers that they went out and caught absolutely nothing. So in verse 4, it says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. So the next morning, Jesus comes to them on the shore, says they didn't recognize him. Maybe, they, maybe he was too far away. Uh, in verse 8, it said they were about 100 yards off of shore, which is the length of a football field. It was early morning. It could have been foggy. Maybe they weren't expecting to see Jesus there. said it was possible. Some scholars have said that maybe they didn't recognize him because he was in his glorified body. That was unrecognizable. Um, there were several instances already in other Gospels that it seems that people didn't recognize Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Um, so if, there's probably something to that. 
In Luke 24, it said that the two on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And when Jesus broke the bread with them, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Later in our passage, it says that none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus is unknown to them in this moment. He asked them a question. He said, children, do you have any fish? When he says the word children in the Greek, it actually is more little children. It's lads, it's boys, it's you know, guys. It's very informal, or it's very, it's very formal of him. He doesn't say brothers, he doesn't say friends. He calls them little boys. So the New American Standard Version translates this with, I think, more of the proper inflection from the Greek. Um, the New American Standard Version says, So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish to eat, do you? It's not, Hey guys, did you catch anything? Huh? Did you catch anything? It's, You don't have any fish, do you? It's almost phrased to expect a no from them. And that's exactly how they answer him. It says, They answered him, No. See, the disciples, they had to acknowledge their failure to catch any fish that night. They toiled all night. They tossed out their nets. They pulled them back in, and they had absolutely nothing to show for it. So those who fish, those who hunt in the room, what's the worst thing to be asked if you don't catch anything? Did you catch anything? You have to say nothing, absolutely nothing. But I love that the disciples, they don't try to make excuses. You know, I've, I've gone out fishing and caught nothing, and I've said, you know, oh, yeah, just the, the wind, the temperature, the, I didn't use the right lure, and, oh, they just weren't hungry that day. But they don't give any excuse. They just say, no. So Jesus wanted their honesty in this moment. He wanted them to acknowledge their emptiness. He wanted them to acknowledge their failure on their own. See, when we're confronted with our struggles and our sins, it's so easy for us to make excuses for them. That's our natural inclination, right? It's just to completely defend ourselves. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says that because of our sin, we will always be making excuses for our sin. We don't truly feel the weight of our sin because of our sin. It's only through seeing the beauty and the holiness of God that we actually see the depth of our sin and really stop making excuses. So today, if you're, when we're confronted with our failures, let's look at this example. It's no excuses. Let's go to Jesus. Let's be honest with him. He's there. He's ready with his arms open for, to just embrace us, for us to give him our struggles and say, God, Jesus, I need your help. He is our intercessor and our advocate. And so this serves as Christ's first reminder to his disciples that they are utterly powerless on their own. It's a reminder of what he taught them back in John 15, verses 1 through 5. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But for apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. No amount of experience, no amount of skill, no amount of willpower can accomplish anything unless we are abiding in Christ. See, the disciples were faced with this reality that on their own, they were unable to catch a single fish that night. But it's also important to note that Jesus 
was just as much in control of their lack of fish as he was in their abundance. See, these fishermen knew the sea. Time and time again, they would cast their nets. They would catch fish, but this time none of them appear. In order for Jesus to bring this miraculous catch, he would have to keep all of those fish away from that boat. I don't know if they would swim through the holes in the net or if there was a circle around the boat that they just kind of were hanging out in. But he had to keep those fish away so that they could be empty. So this morning, if you're experiencing emptiness, know that Jesus is in control of that. He has a purpose in our emptiness. So Jesus used their empty nets to remind them of their fruitlessness without him. And through that, he also reminded them that he alone is their strength and provider. In verse 6, it says, He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So, guys, why don't you try the right side of the boat? You'll find some. It's an odd request. So I worked, I worked in IT for some time. I, pretty fairly, I think I'm knowledgeable about computers for the most part. I can usually fix a lot of things that come up on my computer, but when I can't fix something, I would rather spend, I don't know if anybody else would identify with this, I'd rather spend hours trying to find the answer on my own than to call tech support, right? <laughs> See, I hate, I hate calling tech support because most of the time they give me the most basic advice ever. Did you try turning it on and off again? Did you restart your computer? Did you close it? No, <laughs> silly me, I'd never thought of that before. <laughs> never in my mind. So I can imagine the disciples, they're rolling their eyes, they're going, okay, never, <laughs> we fished the left side of the boat all night. Man, I just, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but here's the thing. The disciples and myself with the computer issues, we wasted so much time trying in our own strength to fix our problems. They were probably desperate like I would be if I called tech support to try any solution that was presented to them. But remember, at this point, they didn't recognize that this was Jesus. They thought this was just some guy on the shoreline. I would think for Peter and Andrew and James and John, this was beginning to feel pretty familiar to them. So if we look back at the Gospel of Luke, we can see a similar situation unfolding. So in Luke 5, it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out in the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and for nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for from now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
So in Luke 5, we see the same exact situation unfolding. The disciples, they go out, they toil all night, and they catch nothing. Jesus tells them to go out into the deep and let down their nets, and they haul in this massive catch. There's a lesson in just the simplicity of trusting and obeying Jesus in what we already know to do. I'm sure the fishermen here, they had gone out into the deep. They had let down their nets. And in John 21, they had probably fished on the right side of the boat. But again, without relying on the provision of Jesus, their labor was completely in vain. We can so easily think that in our mission to reach people that we have to do all of these things that are more complex and more creative than everyone else around us. We have to think outside the box more. We have to do something that maybe no one has ever done before. But when we simply do what God's word has told us that we're supposed to do, and we allow Jesus to work in that, that is when we are most effective. We only need to listen to Jesus and what he has already spoken to us through his word. So after the miracles in Luke 5, Jesus said to them, from now on you will be fishers of men, which is very symbolic of their mission. It was three years prior to all of this in John 21. So now with their sending not far off, This miracle serves to them as a reminder of that mission. And I think one of the most striking differences between these two situations is that of of Peter's reaction. Back in John 21 and verse 7, it says, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So John, who, is, who was there in Luke 5, he immediately recognizes Jesus by his works, and he tells that to Peter. It's a good thing he does, because that's the purpose of his entire gospel. And Peter, we're told here, ever-impulsive Peter, puts on his outer garment, stripped for work, he puts on, his, he puts on all of his clothes, and he throws himself into the sea. The Greek word for that and for stripped for work says that he was inadequately dressed. So when you go swimming, what do you do? Do you put your coat on? Do you pull your pants up? No, no, you, you take your coat off. You, take, you go down to your swimsuit, hopefully your swimsuit. <laughs> so Peter here, though, Takes his, puts all of his clothes that he had on. He was, it was probably hot as he was working all night. And goes into the water, throws himself into the sea. According to Jewish tradition, to greet somebody was a religious act. And so for him to go, knowing that he was going to greet Jesus, he puts all of his clothes back on. So we can't miss this contrast between Luke 5 and John 21. In Luke 5, 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, he was begging Jesus to get away from him. He knew his sin. He knew that he was unworthy to be in Jesus' presence at that moment. I think so often we can feel that way. We can feel the weight of our sin. We can allow that shame to keep us from coming to God. But giving those things to God... Praise be to God that that's not the heart of Christ today. But this time in John 21, Peter, he has a completely different reaction. He jumps into the water and he goes to Jesus. So we don't know how deep the water would be at 100 yards out. 
Have anybody ever tried to like run through like, you know, like waist high deep of water and how kind of awkward that can feel? He was, he didn't care. He was going, he was going to look like a fool as he was going straight to Jesus. He was exhausted from the night before, but he knew that the only place that he wanted to be there was with Jesus. And Peter at this point, he had so much more to be ashamed of than the first time that he met Jesus there. He had just betrayed him. He had said with his pride, oh, I'll, I'll never, I'll never betray you, Jesus. And then he goes and immediately betrays Jesus. He had so much more to be ashamed of, but he didn't care. He needed to be with Jesus. It's like in that song, Before the Throne of God Above, that we sang earlier. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tell me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you're a believer today, there is so much encouragement in that. We know, we see that Peter knows the truth, that his Savior is greater than all of the sin and shame in his life. We can so easily look to our past mistakes, our present mistakes, you know, all of those things and our failures and shy away from coming to Christ and walking with him. But we have so many reasons to not go to Christ, but our reaction must be like Peter's because we know that Christ has paid the penalty for our sin, that our shame is gone because of the cross. And if you're here today and you aren't a believer, there's that same encouragement for you as well. Don't think that your sins and failures are too much for Jesus' mercy. See, every single one of us is by default separated from God. We've put ourselves there because of our nature. We've put ourselves there because of our sin. And only by placing our faith in Jesus are we forgiven of our sins. No amount of shame is too much for Jesus to forgive and restore. So after this, the other disciples brought the net full of fish to the shore. (laughs) They're probably going, thanks for the help, Peter. Is your idea? Your idea to go fishing, fine, we'll, t- we'll, we'll bring the fish. And Jesus has now reminded them that without him, their fruits are worthless and nothing. And with him, that there is, there is fruit there. But he's not done with them yet. We'll pick back up in verse 9. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now that word charcoal that's there, there's only one other place in the Gospel of John that that's used. And that's when Peter is by the fire after he denies Jesus. Same, same descriptor word, charcoal fire. I'm willing to bet that that's on purpose. As the disciples came ashore, they find Jesus. He's got the fire made. He's already cooking the fish. He has some bread. And fish and bread would be such a reminder for the disciples. This was a meal that would be all too familiar with, to them. He had seen, they had seen Jesus take a small number of fish and bread, and multiply that to feed thousands, a couple times at least. So here, Jesus is reminding his disciples that he is their provider. And after the resurrection, he is still providing for them. He taught them this back in Matthew 6, in verses 25 through 33. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He knows that they're tired from this night of fishing, and since it's morning, they're, they're probably hungry. Praise God that he provides for us in our times of need. In their state of hunger and weariness, he provided the fish to catch and to eat, the bread, and he already had some fish cooking on the fire for them. They were hungry, they were tired, and I bet the last thing they wanted to do was make something to eat. Our amazing Savior takes care of us. In verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught. And Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. I love how beautiful that is, that Jesus asked them to bring some of the fish that they've caught. And he provided those fish. The lesson here is that, that we have a responsibility in our mission. We so easily can look at God's sovereignty and maybe become lazy and say, well, God is sovereign. God gets what he wants. What can I do? What help can I be? And this God does get what he wants, but he chose us. He chooses us to be his tools for his mission and will. The God who spoke the entire universe into being, who shows his amazing power through the Bible, he has invited us to be part of his mission. So on a much smaller scale, it's like when my wife and I are doing the dishes and little Gemma runs into the room and she goes, I help? Can I help? I help? And goes and grabs the forks and the spoons from the dishwasher to help put them away. And clearly, we can do it ourselves. We've done the dishes a thousand times at this point. But it is our joy to include her in the task. She lights up with joy and excitement every time I invite her into that. There was one time that I was doing the dishes, and it was something real small. I might have been just loading a couple things, and she runs in and asks to help, and I say, well, no, I've got this, and oh, <laughs> lip, lip starts quivering. Okay. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, take, take the cup, put it in there. <laughs> she lights up with that excitement. We, we're trying to teach our kids that there is the work to do in our house, and we want everyone to be included in that. Our Heavenly Father is the same with his children. So Peter goes and he drags the net ashore. First of all, there's 153 fish in this net and Peter is pulling this net by himself. Has anybody else ever tried to do that? No, that's it's pretty impressive. So the net wasn't torn. Now this would have astonished John the fisherman who's writing this gospel. So why does he include this number, 153 a lot of crazy theories out there. Lots of crazy theories. Um, I'm not going to go into the significance of that number. Um, more likely, John was a fisherman. He would have counted all the fish and said, hey, there's 153 of them. Who, who fishes in here? Only a couple of you? Wow. Uh, you should go out on the lake more. Um, 
How many of you guys, if you, you're fishing, you say, oh yeah, I caught three fish. You know how many you caught, right? Especially if it's zero. Hopefully it's not zero. But more likely, he just he counted them. That's just what he was in the habit of doing. But it really builds up the credibility of his gospel where it says that he was there. He was there. He counted every single one of those fish. So we can believe that. Continuing in verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So finally, Jesus here reminds them that he has risen from the dead. Verse 14, it says this was the third time that Jesus was, again, revealed, manifested, um, manifested himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's an amazing intimacy that we see here with the disciples, that Jesus had breakfast with them. This risen, our risen Savior in his glorified body, who was going to be going to the Father, he sat down and he had breakfast with his disciples. We can't go past this without coming to terms with the fact that Jesus is risen, that he is alive today. This is evidence of the resurrection. He was there after being crucified, after being buried, and he rose. He handed them bread and fish, and he ate with them. See, the resurrection is real, and that means that our hope is real. If Jesus was still in the tomb, it's, it's nothing. Our faith is nothing, but he is alive. He's alive today. We have to be 100% convinced of this. It says, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So it was clear that their recognition here of Jesus was not because of what they saw standing in front of him. Like the two on the road to Emmaus, it's possible that he was concealing himself from them, his true identity. He said this back in chapter 20. It says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, the evidence now was all around them because they knew their king. They knew Jesus. They knew it was him because time and time again, they saw Jesus meeting the needs of those around them and themselves. They recognized the character of Jesus and his loving kindness for them. After periods of unbelief, where they had encountered their resurrected Savior, this time there was no question in the disciples' mind. They knew that this was Jesus, their Lord, their provider, their Savior, and their friend. Because of his finished work on the cross and his resurrection, they and us, we get to enjoy fellowship with Jesus forever. So, as the end credit scene's about halfway over, and we'll finish next week, the same reminders that Jesus had for his disciples, they're here, they're the same reminders that God wants us to remember. We should be encouraged that the Holy Spirit doesn't just teach us these things, we don't read them in the Bible, and then the Holy Spirit just leaves us to just try to remember them on our own. Even if we know these things, there's always going to be a time that we need to be reminded of God's truths. And these are such wonderful reminders. See, we're reminded through both of these scenes with the fishers of men from back in Luke 5 that we're reminded of our mission. The disciples were sent out into the world to preach the gospel. So is our call to witness to those around us. We're also reminded that Christ is risen. 
2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, we're reminded that the tomb is still empty. John's account tells us that Jesus walked and he ate and talked with his disciples. Like we said, the resurrection is the key to our faith there, that we have to be convinced that Jesus is alive. And he's alive today. We can't have any doubt in this like the disciples. They didn't have any doubt in the end. They knew it was the Lord. And finally, we're reminded that in order to accomplish anything with lasting fruit, we must rely completely on our Savior. Without him, our best efforts are completely worthless. John 15 said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, we can do nothing, absolutely nothing. We're like the disciples that labor all night and not catching anything when we don't rely on Christ. All it took for them was to obey Jesus' words, and through Jesus' power, they accomplished what they had worked for all night in a single cast of their nets. We can't do anything without God and his power in our lives, whether it's things that we're good at or things that we're not good at, whether it's our jobs, whether it's raising our kids, studying our Bibles, using our gifts, sharing the gospel with others. All of that is fruitless without abiding in Christ. Psalm 127, 1 through 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. Friends, today, let me ask you all a question. What are the things that you're trying to do in your life right now? What are those things that you're trying to accomplish? Are you working to advance your career, to move up the ladder? Are you trying to finish school? Are you a parent and you're working really hard to raise godly children? Are you working to strengthen or maybe even save your marriage? Are you struggling with a sin that you, you can't seem to overcome on your own? See, no matter what we try to do, we will fail in all of those things without the power and strength and provision of our Savior. We can look a thousand different places for help and strength, self-help books, YouTube videos, motivational speakers, what have you, but we need to turn to Jesus and pray and ask him for his strength that he promises that he'll give us. How often do we do that? So we need to stop laboring in vain, and we need to fully rely on Christ for everything in our lives. Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your power and your strength. God, thank you for these reminders that we need to hear every day. That we would believe that you are risen. That we would live like you are, you are risen. God, we thank you for your word that reminds us of our fruitlessness without you, God. I ask that you would touch all of our hearts today and convict us to always go to you and look to you for our strength. Help us this week as we go out and do the work of your, 
of what you would have us do. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.